Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast, gathering evidence from the literature. I'm Mike Pratz. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. Kim Fender, who is one of our illustrious, magnificent ultrasound fellows. I'm so glad that she actually brought this article to my attention. Therefore, I wanted to bring her in and have her come talk to us about peritonsillar abscess. Kim, thanks so much for this idea and for helping put this podcast together. The title of this article is Evidence-Based Medicine Improves the Emergent Management of Peritonsillar Abscesses Using Point-of-Care Ultrasound sound. This was published in the journal Emergency Medicine, November 2020. Kim, tell me a little bit about using ultrasound for peritonsillar abscess. All right, so peritonsillar abscesses are the most common deep space infection in the neck. We see this as a frequent presentation in the emergency department, but they can be really diagnostically challenging to differentiate a peritonsillar abscess from just basic tonsillar cellulitis upon physical examination alone. And while complications are rare, they can be life-threatening. So it's really important to recognize and treat this pathology early. Traditional management involves landmark-based blind needle aspiration, but not surprisingly, this isn't super successful. We also don't want to CT everyone's neck. We are all very conscious about radiation exposure to sensitive structures like the thyroid. PTA, meet your match, POCUS. POCUS has transformed the management of these pesky little purulent collections in recent years. Prior studies have shown that POCUS helped improve diagnostic accuracy and increase the rates of successful aspirations of PTAs. To understand this a little bit better, we need to jump back a few years and talk about a randomized controlled trial by the group Constantino et al. published in 2012. This study demonstrated that ultrasound confirmed the diagnosis of PTA more often and led to more successful aspirations than a landmark-based technique. Additionally, the study showed there was a lesser need for ENT consultation and CT when ultrasound was used instead of the landmark-based approach. However, this RCT was small. It only had 28 patients, and they also used intraoral ultrasound-assisted. They also seem to be evaluating it as a diagnostic test compared to drainage for diagnosis. That's a really good point, Kim. And the reason that we have to go into detail on this RCT is because that forms the basis for this study today. Because essentially, they wanted to figure out if this study affected the use of -of point-of-care ultrasound for peritonsillar abscess in the emergency department. Management of PTAs is a skill that all emergency providers need to be proficient in. POCUS can help you guide your needle to benefit you and your patient in the future and make this procedure a little less challenging and improve your patient outcomes. We did previously look at a article on peritonsillar abscess that was using a transcervical ultrasound protocol in pediatrics, and that article seemed to shorten the emergency department length of stay. We'll link to that podcast in the show notes. Let's talk about the questions that the study specifically addressed. So question number one, so since the publication of the randomized controlled trial by Constantino et al. in 2012, how has physician behavior changed with regard to using POCUS in the management of PTA? It's important to note that this study was based at the same institution that the randomized trial was performed at several years ago. Second question is, does EP use of POCUS increase the likelihood of successful PTA aspiration? 
And the third main question that the study addressed was, does EP use of POCUS decrease the likelihood of ENT consultation, CT imaging, unscheduled emergency department return visits, and length of stay in the emergency department? Let's talk about how they performed this study. So as far as the population, they used inclusion criteria of anyone 18 years old or greater, and they had to have a final diagnosis of peritonsillar abscess. That means that they excluded anybody that had peritonsillar cellulitis, phlegma, changes, a CT that was performed prior to the ultrasound, or that they were transferred from an outside facility. This is actually a big deal because I'm a little bit concerned already that they excluded people with peritonsillar cellulitis because that's one of the main reasons that we're using ultrasound is to differentiate from cellulitis in an actual abscess. So already keep in mind that all of these patients included in this study had the diagnosis of a peritonsillar abscess. The way they performed this study was retrospectively at a single center. They queried the electronic health records trying to find patients diagnosed with peritonsillar abscess using ICD-9 codes. They ultimately got two cohorts of patients. Cohort one was before the RCT that they wanted to test, and that ended up being from 2007 to 2008. And then cohort two, after the RCT was published, was 2013 to 2014. Again, they retrospectively reviewed the charts and abstracted data on all of these patients trying to find a lot of the demographic and also clinical data that was relevant to whether the ultrasound affected their care. They divided all of the patients into two patient groups. Either they got a point-of-care ultrasound in the emergency department or they did not. No ultrasound. Their primary outcome was just how often was ultrasound being used between cohort one and cohort two. And then secondarily, they were interested in how often were they successful with aspiration? How often did they consult ENT, get advanced imaging, all the other stuff that we really care about. Now, who did the ultrasounds? Well, it was EM residents of any year under the supervision of attending emergency medicine physicians. As far as how they did the ultrasound, as Kim mentioned, they were using an intracavitary probe. It's always good not to call it a transvaginal probe when you're putting it in the oral cavity. They used that as ultrasound assistance for the procedure. And by that, I mean they did not dynamically use the probe to guide their needle into the abscess. They instead found whether the abscess was there or not and perhaps noted the location and used that to help guide their procedure to drain it. The way they did this was that they introduced the probe into the oral cavity, found the area in the peritonsillar space that appeared to look like an abscess, which it looks like an abscess anywhere else pretty much, where it's an anechoic or hypochoic area, and in this case in the posterior pharynx near the area of swelling and symptoms. They actually did a nice job measuring the distance from the probe to the abscess as well as to the carotid artery, which is always something that we aim to avoid. Thanks, Mike. So let's talk about the results of the study. As Mike mentioned, they broke their groups up into two different cohorts, cohort one and cohort two. They analyzed the data from cohort one and cohort two separately, and then they pooled the data together collectively. So let's talk about their primary outcome. So their primary outcome was POCUS utilization between cohorts, before and after the landmark study. 
Essentially, for their primary outcome, they found that EP use of POCUS as a tool in the management of PTA did significantly increase from 25% to 78% since the publication of the results of the randomized trial. But again, just remember that this was at the same institution. This study validated the use of and demonstrated the benefit of POCUS in the management of PTAs. Their secondary outcomes are really more interesting to me. For cohort 1, just to summarize, this only had a small group of patients, only 48. So in cohort one, they found that successful aspirations by an emergency medicine provider and a decreased need for ANT consultation were clinically significant outcomes between the POCUS versus no ultrasound groups. There was also no clinical significance between the overall success rate of drainage when ANT consult was added, CT usage, and return visits between groups. In the second cohort, so let's just remind ourselves this occurred after that landmark randomized control trial, this group was bigger, so they had 114 patients. In this group, they did find that successful aspirations by EP alone and with ENT consultation reduced rate of ENT consults, lower CT usage, and reduced average length of stay in the ED were clinically significant outcomes between the POCUS versus no ultrasound groups. Return visits were not clinically significant between POCUS versus no ultrasound. When they combined the data between cohort one and cohort two, they found that the overall successful aspiration by EP combined EP plus ENT success, the need for ENT consultations and return visits were clinically significant when they combined this data. CT usage was not clinically significant, but there was a trend toward decreased CT usage in the POCUS group. So that's all pretty impressive. And I have to say that although we don't generally like pooling heterogeneous data, like taking that cohort one that was kind of different time frame than cohort two, I think that is probably the best way to understand the significance of some of these findings. So Kim, can you give us some numbers? Like what's the differences in the success of the procedure or some of those other outcomes that they were looking at when they pulled the data? Because these differences were seen in the individual cohorts, but just for the sense of summary, perhaps we can just talk about the numbers when they put them together. When they combined the data and looked at successful aspirations by emergency medicine providers when they used POCUS compared to not using POCUS to drain a peritonsal abscess. If they used POCUS, they were about 89% successful versus if they didn't use POCUS, they were only about 25% successful. That's a pretty impressive difference. Looking at kind of overall success, so this included ED plus ENT, successful aspiration in the POCUS group was 99% versus with no ultrasound, 80%. When we looked at our ENT consultant rate, only 12.9% of patients that received POCUS had to ultimately get a consult. Versus if you didn't use ultrasound, you were definitely more likely to consult uh, with 65.6%. CT usage was also trending towards less while not clinically significant with a p-value of 0.07. Those patients, if you had POCUS, were only 23.8% chance of getting a CT versus if you did not have ultrasound, you were 37.7% likely to get a CT. When they looked at return visits, they also found that there was a clinical significant difference here too. So if you had POCUS, your likelihood of return visit was only about 3.9% versus if you didn't have ultrasound, this was 18.0%. 
And we were really vigilant to make sure that they weren't finding these statistically significant changes by putting together these two groups. And that last one, the return visits, that was the one case where it was not significant in cohort one, not significant in cohort two, but by combining them, suddenly now they have enough patience to show that this is statistically significant. So I have a little more doubt about the return visit outcome than some of the other ones. Otherwise, this is just a reflection of what they saw in every cohort, that essentially using the point of care ultrasound gives you higher success rate, less consultation, in some cases, less CT. And I think it's helpful too, because these are similar outcomes that they looked at in their initial paper. So it just adds and kind of confirms their findings that they found originally. Great. So Kim, what are some of the reasons that you thought this was a good paper? What are some of the strengths? One of the main things that I liked about this study was that the POCUS exam was performed by the same clinicians treating the patients. In the ultrasound literature, we don't often see this, and sometimes we see that the ultrasounds were just performed by ultrasound fellowship-trained physicians, and this wasn't the case in this situation. I also really like their secondary outcomes because these outcomes really mean something to me, such as reduction in length of stay, return visits, and overall success. One thing that can be a strength but also a limitation is that I think this is fairly generalizable to an academic EM setting where most ED attendings and residents are really familiar with ultrasound. Most ED attendings that supervised the exam you know, were not EOS fellowship trained and hadn't performed more than 10 prior PTA POCUS scans. So I think it shows that you know, this can potentially be reproducible and that this isn't a super challenging task. Now there were a number of limitations that we have to address. First of all, this was a single center, and as you mentioned, Kim, this was the same center where they did that initial RCT that they were looking to see if it had a significant impact. So for the primary outcome of seeing if that study actually changed practice, it's very unclear if that is just because it was at the same institution. Furthermore, because it was kind of a pre-post design for that primary outcome, there's so many other things that could have changed that outcome, that, that could have made providers use ultrasound more. Perhaps it's just a younger cohort of attendings that are more comfortable with ultrasound. Maybe there's been a greater amount of evidence that just shows it's possible. In any case, I think it still stands that there is more ultrasound being used. We just don't know exactly why that might be. Actually, their secondary outcomes, which I find a lot more interesting, have similar limitations in that this is a pre-post design. So many biases in selecting the patients and finding the patients based on only their ICD-9 codes. So I think there's a lot of challenges in drawing definitive conclusions from this data. But overall, it is really encouraging that they found so much benefit to doing the ultrasound. And when you look at their odds ratio for some of these outcomes, they're really impressive. And so even though you know there's a lot of biases that could definitely affect the data, I think it's important to note that you know the data that they have is fairly strong in, in suggesting that point-of-care ultrasound can be really helpful in management of PTAs. So one of the other limitations that we had talked about, Mike, you know, it would be really awesome if the study had talked a little bit about those patients with peritonsor cellulitis, phlegmonous changes, because that's where I find point-of-care ultrasound really useful, saying whether or not there's actually a PTA there. The other thing is that I would really like to know of in the patients that ended up getting a CT scan, like how many of those actually had a peritonsor abscess, how did that affect their management, etc. 
those are really good points, Kim. And another thing that you brought up to me about this was that they only looked at intraoral or intracavitary probe uses for peritonsillar abscesses, when we know now that you can also get that same information using a submandibular or transcervical approach to that same anatomic area. And that has many advantages in that may be more comfortable to the patient. You may have an easier time directly guiding the procedure since you don't have to fight for the real estate of their mouth when they have significant trismus. So I think that it would be cool also to see some of the same outcomes using transcervical ultrasound or even a combination depending on each patient. One of the other things that I would really like to see would be that it would be helpful to see this study replicated at another institution to improve external validity of their results. I entirely agree. So let me summarize the study. So this study was a retrospective pre and post cohort design, and they were looking at primarily if this article or something changed that increased use of point-of-care ultrasound for peritonsillar abscesses between these two time periods. They found that indeed there was an increase in using ultrasound from the first cohort to the second cohort. For their secondary outcomes, they also found improvement that when you use POCUS, you lessen the need for ENT consultations, reduce the length of stay, reduce return visits, and basically make everything great for your patient. So the take-home points for this study are that, number one, at least at this institution, since the publication of that RCT, there is an increase in their use of ultrasound for peritonsillar abscesses. Number two, POCUS does seem to increase success and decrease ENT consults and length of stay, but I think we have the caveats of knowing that this was retrospective pre and post studies where they didn't include things that could masquerade as peritonsillar abscesses, so we have to take that with a little bit of caution. In the future, we would love to see how POCUS can change peritonsillar abscess when an abscess is not identified or if it's peritonsillar cellulitis, and then definitely we want to replicate these results at another institution. I have to thank the authors for this study. It really adds to the evidence that we have for peritonsillar abscess, and it's really exciting to see this happen. And thank you for continuing to listen to our podcast. You can always check out more at ultrasoundgel.org, visit us on Facebook, or talk to any of us on Twitter. Until then, we'll talk to you later. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Sorry, I have to sneeze. (laughs) Okay, I think I went away. I'm sorry. (laughs)